Good to be with you tonight in the presence of the Lord. I ask you if you will, please open your Bible with me to the book of Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. And we will be going to four different texts, beginning with Genesis 18. Praise God. As you turn there, I just want to encourage you regarding prayer and regarding being uh, at the meetings. I would just encourage you to make it a point to be here if you can. Amen. Praying is something we have to learn to do. Praying is something that God has to teach us to do. When the disciples saw the way that Jesus prayed, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. They never said, teach us to cast out demons, or teach us to be better preachers, or teach us to do miracles. But they saw the way that Jesus spoke to God. They saw the intimacy and the relationship that He had with God. And they came to Him and said, could, could you teach us to pray the way that you pray and Jesus didn't merely give them form or structure. He began with intimacy. When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it can become so easy to lose intimacy in prayer and for it to become a mechanical thing, a procedural thing, something that we're trying to check a list off of. But we really must learn to be alone with God, to love God, to pray to God for His own sake. Amen? Praise God. To love God for His own sake. Amen? And so I pray that you will do what you can to be here and to be a part of it. The day that I was born again, I learned to pray. I mean, I was born again in a revival. And from that moment on, I prayed and I knew how to pray. I knew how to talk to my father, and I love my father, but after, what, now, 17 years, I think, of being a Christian, uh, I have gone through seasons, uh, and I'm, I'm coming out of one right now, where ministry and serving the Lord became so much of the forefront of my relationship with God, that my prayer life became, here are the burdens for your people, here are the needs of your people, here are the discouragements that they're facing, here are the diseases they're dealing with, here's the weariness, here's the trouble. And it began to be so much about what I was doing for the Lord that I wasn't just spending time with the Lord. Amen? And it robbed the preciousness of prayer. And so I'm in a season where I'm learning to be again just with the Lord to say, I love you. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you that you would want to dwell with me and spend time with me. Thank you that you cherish this from me. Isn't it so amazing? I mean, have you met me? Right? And the fact that the Lord would say, I just want to spend time with you. Right? I, I get so bored of me, so frustrated with me. But my Father loves to spend time with me. Amen? And all oh, that my heart would long and yearn to spend time with Him in the same way. Praise God. Amen. I ask you please open with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. I'm, I plan to do a specific teaching tonight. And it's going to be more of a teaching than preaching. I want to talk to us tonight about being a parent, about being a father, about being a mother about raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But I encourage you that if you don't have children or your children are grown or out of your house, not to check out because you think, well, I don't have children. I'm not a mother. I'm not a father. I don't know that Paul ever had any natural children. But I don't know of a greater father in the faith than that man Paul. Amen? And he says in Timothy that when I was with you, I was gentle as a nursing mother. But I was strong and disciplining like a courageous father. Right? In other words, I served you as a parent. I raised you in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And some of the greatest spiritual influences of my life were not natural fathers or mothers, but they were spiritual fathers and mothers. Amen? 
And they had children in the house of the Lord. And they cared for them and they loved them. And it may not be your reality right now, but it may be your reality later uh, to be a parent. My, uh, my wife, her father is, uh, I think, 87 years old. 87 years old. She is 30. I'm smart enough no, not to finish that. Um, and I don't know that he intended to have more children, but he did, right? And so who knows? Maybe somebody in here is an Abraham or a Sarah. I don't know if you'd be praying for that. If I prayed that for you, you might rebuke me. <laughs> Say, do not pray for that blessing for me. Um, but you never know. Amen. And so I believe this is something that is for everyone Mainly because of this, the Word of the Lord is centered on families, right? It follows families. It it talks about the work of God in the midst of families. And the family of our culture and society has been torn apart. The fabric is destroyed. It is ruined. It is so maligned we don't even know what it should look like anymore. And God must restore a vision for that in our culture and society today. And so I'm believing God to help us this morning or this evening to see what the family ought to look like. So I want to talk to you tonight about four countercultural mandates. Four countercultural mandates for fathers and mothers. And you will notice that primarily these texts speak to the men. They speak to the fathers because the father is supposed to be the head of the home and the leader of the home. But often what you find in the Word of God is things specifically said to men are applicable to women as well, right? Paul would say, I would, that men would pray everywhere. Well, I think it'd be great if women were praying everywhere too. Amen? Praise God. And so it's just specifically saying, as the head of your home, you've got the responsibility to make sure this is happening, but this is a family effort. Amen? Praise God. Hallelujah. Right? So it's speaking to fathers, but if this family that I've got turns out well, you better believe that woman's getting most of the credit. Amen? And whatever's wrong with it, I get most of the blame. So, uh, Genesis 18, 16 to 22. Before we get into that, I'll, just, I'll share a definition with you. As we're talking about counter-cultural mandates... The reason this is necessary is because the Word of God is always set in contrast to the existing culture of the world around the people of God, right? That there, there is a present culture, a dominating culture. It is the main culture, and God calls His people out of that culture to create a new subculture that is supposed to then bleed back into it, right? Amen? Isn't this the picture of Abraham come out of your father's house who was a part of the nations? And we found out in Deuteronomy that his father was an idol maker and an idol worshiper. And there was incest in Abraham's father's home and all of this ungodliness. And then God calls Abraham out of it. But then he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's not to bring you out, save you, and then say, forget everybody. Just let them all be kindling for the wrath of God. Let the culture around you be destroyed forget them no come out from them be changed by the grace of god and then take that grace through the gospel and the faith of the lord jesus christ back into that culture and see it transformed for the glory of god amen and we do this through ministering to our culture around us but also through ministering to our children and creating a new culture in our homes that the world can look at and say that's beautiful i want that amen Uh, And I'll share with you just a quick example of this is uh, over the summer I had to uh, get a part-time job working with a uh, landscaping company in Lafayette. And you can imagine what that was like uh, for me. Nobody give an explanation of why you think that would be difficult. We all know what's going on. Um, (laughs) But I began to do that. And as I'm there, there's one particularly loud person on the job. He dominates all of the conversations, right? He just, he has to speak all the time, say something all the time. Whatever is on his mind is coming out of his mouth. And there's lots of cursing, lots of vulgarity, uh, lots of ugly talk, sinful talk, ungodly talk. And I'm just quiet. I'm just working. I'm running a shovel. I'm doing the thing 
things that I'm doing. And they begin asking me questions. And immediately they find out I'm a pastor. So no one knows my real name is Brandon. I'm just preacher. Preacher. Go pick that up. Preacher. Dig this hole. Preacher. Do Preacher. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I never had to shove anything down their throat. But they're talking about all the women they slept with, all the money they spent, all the things that they've done, all the drinking that they do. And this man begins to ask me questions. We begin to talk about my family and ask me questions about my wife and my children. And he says, you're telling me that until the day you got married, you were a virgin? And I'm thinking he's probably going to think that that's hilarious and mock me and you've only been with one woman. And by the end of six weeks, this man is sitting there and begins to cry. Right? A tough man, right? Strong man, right? With things that he considers, these are things to boast about. All the women I've slept with, all the things that I've done, all the fights that I've been in, all the violence that I've participated in. And he says, you know, I'm really jealous of you. He says, I've, well, I won't use the word that he used, but he's, he said, I was a certain kind of man or a man, expletive, uh, my whole life. He said, I never could be faithful to one woman, and now I'm married, and I'm afraid that I'm going to cheat on her because I don't know how to be faithful and how to control myself and all the things that I've done, and I'm broken, and I'm so terrified of what I'm going to do to this relationship. I finally got this good woman, and I'm afraid that I'm going to mess it up, and I'm really jealous of what you have, and I'm really jealous for what you and your wife have and the relationship that you have. That's really beautiful. And I just began to tell him about the grace of God and how I didn't experience many of the things that he did, but those things were in my heart. And I was on the verge of beginning to act those things out when I got saved. And the grace of God changed my heart. And that the grace of God could change his heart as well. And it was an open door to, to show him the ways of the Lord are not just different ways. There are better ways. Amen? They are beautiful ways. They are treasured ways. They are wonderful ways. But he was influenced by the culture around him. But praise God, the Holy Ghost worked another culture inside of me. Amen? The Word of God worked another culture inside of me. And that culture ought to flow down to my wife and to my children and to all of those that I'm in community with until the Word of God can be true and say, you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Amen. And so let's define culture. If we're talking about countercultural mandates, what is culture? Culture is the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Also, the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversion or way of life, shared by people in a place or time, like pop culture or southern culture as examples. It is the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize an institution or a society. Let's put it this way. The culture is the things that you never have to question or think about. You just do it because monkey see, monkey do. Right? It's what all the people around you do. It's what you've seen your whole life. You are pressured by social uh, forces to be conformed to that and participate in that way. That is culture. It's the predominant norm in a group of people, right? That's what culture is. But God calls us to institute a countercultural movement in our own lives and in the lives of our children and those around us. Amen? Before we get into our first point, let's pray tonight. Lord, we ask You to help us to see the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, and Lord, to see through a lens of grace that, Lord, these things might not be reflected in our own lives right now. That our homes may look nothing like this. Our attitudes may look nothing like this. But Lord, this Word that You've given us, this Holy Scripture, was not given to condemn us for what we are not. It was given to become a vision for what we can be by the grace of God. And we ask You, shape our homes. Shape our mothers and our fathers and our grandmothers and our grandfathers and our husbands and our wives. Shape our children. Teach us, Lord, to minister to our families, Lord, and to minister to the culture around us by the grace of God. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
and amen. I have four points tonight. And the first point is this, and we'll look at uh, we'll look at Genesis 18 in just a moment. But the first point is this: when an evil culture faces destruction, a new culture of godliness must be established. Let's hear that again. When an evil culture faces destruction, a new culture of godliness must be established. In other words, there is a contrast here between a society that has reached a tipping point of moral and religious or spiritual evil and compromise that they then began the downward spiral into destruction. And as that happens, God desires to bring up and to establish a new culture of righteousness that will not bring a curse on people the way that this destroyed culture does, but to bring a blessing on people. Amen? Let's look at this example in Genesis 18, 16 to 22. It says this, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. This is the Lord coming down from heaven and speaking to Abraham about the things that he's going to do through his life. And as the Lord begins to leave, it says this in verse 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham Abraham still stood before the Lord. And so here you have an intentional contrast in the Word of God where God draws a connection between His presence and His visitation upon a culture that has abandoned God, abandoned justice, become so filled with ungodliness that it is worthy of destruction. And then God has come to a man named Abraham and began to promise him that he was going to work through his life, he was going to bless people through his life, he was going to change people through his life, and that God loved him and God was going to do wonderful things through him. And God begins to speak with him about the things of God and the things of faith. And God begins to give him promises and things that he is to expect and believe for for his future. And as God's leaving, he says, I can't just tell him what I'm doing in his family, in his life, through the culture that I'm trying to create in him. I've got to show him the opposite side of that. I need to tell him. And so the point is, God begins to tell Abraham, this is what I want to do through you. But here are these people over here. And they're not walking in my ways and they don't have my faith. And they're corrupted. And they're taking advantage of one another. They're destroying one another. They're harming one another. My judgment is going to come on them. And I need you to understand that you have got to see the difference between the outward culture and their sin and their ungodliness and the way that they're behaving and what I want for you. And I need you to know what the stakes are, Abraham. I need you to know what the cost is, Abraham. And I need you to live in the light of that cost of the potential blessings of God and also the potential judgments of God. Amen? This is why we preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Because the grace of God has such depths that we will never find the bottom of it. But it does not negate the seriousness of His justice. Amen? And it does not undermine the consequences of sin. Praise God. And so he says, Abraham, you've got to raise your children. You've got to see your children raised in a different way because the world will eat them up and destroy them. And they will break their own selves. 
What this Scripture teaches us is that we must help our children to recognize the corruption in the culture around them and to notice the connection between their corruption and the consequences of it so that they will be able to resist its temptation. This is one of the things I love about the book of Proverbs is half of Proverbs is just someone who's smart enough to sit around and watch people and the things that they do and then the things that happen as a consequence and go, oh, he put his finger in the dog's mouth and he got bit. Shouldn't keep on doing that. He put his hand in the fire and it got burned. He shouldn't do that, right? And just going, these are people's behaviors and here are the consequences and I don't want you, my son, to fall into those things. Amen? And so the whole point of Proverbs is the writer of Proverbs saying this, hey, I don't want you to learn everything the hard way. Amen? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to discover the consequences and the blessings of every behavior on your own. You can watch other people and go, they're wise. I want to do the wise things that they're doing and they're foolish and I definitely don't want the consequences of what they're doing, so I won't do that anymore, right? I mean, go read Proverbs 5. He says, I looked and through my lattice, right, I saw a young man who was foolish. He was stupid. He's walking down the road. And here's the adulterous woman. And she comes out to meet him. And she's got all of her makeup on. She's perfumed and beautiful. And he's just a dumb little bit going, oh, do, do. you know, what's going to happen? And he goes, she takes hold of him. says, my husband is gone for many days. I, I've perfumed my bed and I've got my oils and I, I'm beautiful and I'm pretty. And my husband's not here. Oh, stolen bread. Tastes so good. Stolen waters are so sweet. He'll never know. You'll never get caught. He says, he doesn't know that it is for his life and that her steps go down to the grave, down to Sheol, because when that man finds out, he's going to kill him. He said, but he's an idiot. He doesn't know. He's like, a woman is attracted to me and she likes me and I don't have to marry her and there's no consequences and I just get to have pleasure. Yeah, this is a great deal. Right? You're just walking down the street and someone's like, here's $100,000. You just go out and have that. Yay! And he goes, son, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? No. So just don't take the fire into your chest. And so this is the point. It's simply observing the behavior of other people and going, I don't want that. This is not to create superior attitudes or self-righteousness or, or a religious spirit that goes, I'm so glad we're not like that awful world out there. It's to say there are obvious consequences between behavior and choices. And I want a better way. Amen? You know what my father used to say to me when I was a boy, and I, don't, I didn't understand it at the time, but I do now because I have children. He would say, boy, you don't believe fire burns, do you? You won't believe me. I'm telling you, this is hot. This will burn you. And you're like, I don't think it will. I think everyone else gets burned when they touch the fire. But I'll get away with it. I didn't get burned yet. I didn't get burned yet. Ah, oh, I got singed. Aren't you a genius? Right? You won't believe. You have to find out for yourself. And so he sets a contrast. And, and how would we change the way that we speak and talk about things if we would simply observe people and the choices that they make around us and teach our children and say, look at, look at the things that they're doing, right? Maybe say, hey, that actress that you love so much on television and she's just the most beautiful, incredible thing, yeah, she's, she's so beautiful and so talented and she's wealthy. But is she happy? Is her marriages working out well? Why is she married and divorced three times and four times and five times, right? This guy that he looks like the coolest guy in his life is so perfect. Why did he end up committing suicide, right? Why do these things keep happening to them? Because they are getting the pleasures of a culture, but they're also getting the consequences of that culture. Right? And trying to teach them this is the outcome. And that's what scares me to death about parenting because my oldest son is 11, about to be 12 years old, and the idea of him transitioning to that point of I have to teach him all these things and then go, here's some freedom to make some decisions that I don't like, and I'm going to tell you what's right, I'm going to help you observe, but begin to 
make some decisions and then face the concept. It scares me to death. It terrifies me. Why did none of you tell me? You knew when I was having children. You knew. And none of you told me that I was signing up for a lifetime of paranoia and fear and anxiety because I can't control all of their decisions and protect them in a perfect little bubble. And helicopter parenting isn't healthy, and everyone knows it. And I am like a black hawk, right? Like, I'm trying to hover, bro. I'm like, let's let's stay 10 feet off the ground with a 50 cal and protect all these guys, right? I just kill everything that comes over the horizon, Right? And it's just, you can't do it. And to have to give them some liberty to make some choices that you know are harmful, but to point out the consequences and hope they have the wisdom to make the right choice, it scares me to death. But he says, that's what you've got to do. You've got to be able to show them the consequences of following the culture. Look with me at the next point, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. There's supposed to be four points to this. We'll see. Point two. Deuteronomy 6. We'll read the text in a moment. This is point two. We're encouraged to join the effort to build a culture of godliness that will sustain the blessings which God will send by grace. You hear that? We're invited to join the effort to build a culture of godliness together with God's people, our combined efforts together, that will sustain the blessings which God will send by grace. And the reason we say by grace is because God is bringing the people of Israel into the promised land. And He's telling them, I'm going to give you all these blessings. I'm just, I'm going to do this in your life. You haven't had a chance yet to be the faithful people of God. Your parents who disobeyed me have walked with me for 40 years in the wilderness. They're all going to die. And now you are supplanting them as the new people who are responsible for your decisions. And before you ever have a chance to earn it, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. Just by grace, I'm going to give you this land. But once you're there, don't forget the Lord. Don't compromise with the culture around you. Build a culture of godliness says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 15, and we'll read quickly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and these shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to give your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, When you have eaten and are full, then beware. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. We're told here that we must take every opportunity to speak to our children about the things of God. To tell them who God is and what His promises and blessings are. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And then he says, teach these ways diligently to your children. So there's a time of specific teaching where you're speaking to them repetitively about the things of the Lord but you don't stop there. Then talk with them when you're in the way, when you're walking. Just going down the street, just going to the store. Just talk about the things that you read. And you're rising up. You're in the morning. Good morning, son. Look at this beautiful day that God made. Good morning, honey. Hey, you see, God's sending some rain. We're going to get some beautiful flowers and things are going to smell wonderful because this is the world God made and He's given us this beautiful place. Oh, someone spoke unkindly to you and they were mean to you. 
man, the Lord is not that way. He loves you. And they're speaking critical and harsh things to you. But God loves you. And He says you were made in His likeness and in His image. And I want you to know the Lord can heal your broken heart. Right? Speak with them. Just in the little moments. The here and the there. This is, this is the difference between simply including religious things in your conversation and creating a biblical worldview for your child. It is involving the truth of Scripture in all the details of life. Showing them that there is not a Christian part of your life and then the non-Christian part of your life that involves everything else. Right? There is everything of life that God has made. Right? Do you enjoy baseball? Good. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Fun, activities, all the things of life are things that God made. And we get to enjoy it. Praise God. And so, when you're walking in the way, in every moment of life, speaking to them, including the things of God in your conversation, be inundated with the truth of Scripture. And then when you teach them these things, make sure that you're living it. Right? So he says, teach them diligently to your children. Then when you get into the promised land, you get all of His blessings. Don't go, thanks for all the stuff from your hand, God, and then forget His face. And you've taught your children the things of God and spoken to them and shown them. And they know all about Jesus, but they see that you're all about money. And you're all about work and you're all about your career and you're all about your entertainment. And you're all about the boat and the lake and the game and the fun and the entertainment and the stuff that you're doing in your life and your pleasure and your joy. And before you know it, you're a completely different person than what you've shown them in the Word of God. Amen? How many of us spend so much time trying to make our children better children and yet not enough time trying to make us better parents? I feel like I'm about to cause a church split. Someone's going to text Lee. Why, who invited him? Children learn best in the day-to-day conversations, not lectures. Amen. When you walk in the way, just in little moments here and there, teaching them, including them. I'll never forget a lesson that, an example of this that I got in an email that I used to get from a particular ministry that would just have helpful parenting tips all the time. And I need all of them, right? Like, I need two a day. That one-a-day email stuff ain't going to work. I need all the tips that I can get. Help me, Lord. And one of them was, it was specifically used an example of including your, your conversations about the Lord in the day-to-day things of life. And it used an example of when you're fixing a bike or fixing something and explaining to your child the way that this is broken, but we don't throw it away. We fix it in the same way. God sees that we're broken like vessels marred in the hand of the potter, but He doesn't just throw us away. He works us over and He renews us and He recreates us. And I'll never forget, my son Aaron was about four years old and we're working on his bike and the chain came off. And I'm just being honest with you, I was tired, stressed out, frustrated. And I just didn't want to fix the bike. I just didn't care, but he needed the bike fixed. And he's been asking me to do it. And we start doing it. And with not a good attitude, I just chose to be obedient to the Lord in faith in that moment. And I said, son, you see this the way this bike is broken? I can fix it for you, son. I'll never forget the surprise on his face. He was just, I guess, getting to the age where he could understand things. And he said, you can fix it, Daddy? I said, yeah, I can fix it, son. I said, you know, in the same way that this bike needs to be fixed, often we're broken. You know, sometimes you don't have the best attitude or you're not listening to Mommy. Yeah. You know, sometimes Daddy's uh, annoyed or not having a good attitude. Yeah, right. He's like convinced. He's like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Or, and just talking about those things, and he and I said, the same way God sees those things that are broken in us, but He doesn't throw us away. He loves us, and He'll work on us, and He'll change us, and He'll help fix us. And that was the first moment that I saw a light come on in my son's mind about the things of God. 
And it just became such an everyday part of what we do. If we're watching something with a superhero or good, good guy, bad guys, children love easy to understand things, right? Good guys and bad guys, right? You, you want the antagonist and the protagonist and they're fighting and that's the point of the story is the conflict that they have. And then you're unsatisfied if it's not resolved with the good guy wins and the bad guy loses. And one day me and my son were talking about something we watched and he said, you know, Daddy, I'm so glad this guy got that guy and he can't hurt any people, hurt people anymore. And I said, that's right, son. I said, it was good to see that bad guy taken down, wasn't it? He said, yeah. I said, you know, son, the problem with that is we always want to see the bad guy lose and the good guy win and we want to see the bad guy pay. But we're the bad guy, son. I said, do you lie sometimes? Yeah, Daddy. Do you obey me all the time? No, Daddy. And we just had these conversations about the sins and the wrong things that we do. And I said, if God is perfect, if He's just, do we deserve to be punished like that guy was punished? And the look that came over his face, this sudden awareness that he was in trouble with God. I said, yeah, Daddy. He should punish us. I said, you know, son, this is the wonderful thing that in the story of the Gospel, the good guy lays down his life for the bad guy. And he didn't come to destroy the bad guy, he came to save the bad guy. And Jesus Christ came to never sin. And we crucified Him. And He rose from the dead to forgive us. And to tell us that He loves us. And the very ones that pulled the beard out of His, beard out of his face and said, crucify Him, crucify Him. He says, come unto Me, all ye that are weary. And heavy laden. He said, Daddy, that's what he does for us? Yes, son. <sighs> Bro, I couldn't wait. I'm like, was it bedtime yet? Right, we're going to talk about Jesus and the gospel and the things of God because it's so real and it makes sense to him. Included in the everyday things of life. If we're doing that, we need to be aware. Don't fill up all of your free time with your children on entertainment or distraction. Talk to them about life and integrate the gospel, right doctrine, and the ways of God into each conversation. It's just so easy, right? It's just, it's just so difficult. Life is stressful. Life is busy. Kids are distracting. You come home from a long day of work and you just want to sit down and zone out, right? That's what I want to do. After I'm tired, busy, distracted, I want everyone else to disappear and fall into the background. And if I can just stare at a blank wall, oh, hallelujah, Jesus, right? I just, I want to say nothing. I want to think about nothing. I don't want to answer a question. What do you want for dinner? I don't care. Cardboard with ketchup if I don't have to make a decision, right? I just want to think about nothing. And the kids come up, Daddy, look what I drew. Daddy, can I, can I play this? Daddy, can we do that? Can you throw the ball, Daddy? Right? Mama, mama, mama. Mama, 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 mama. I'm in the bathroom. Go away. Right? I just want two minutes to myself. Right? The day comes far too quickly when our children no longer say mama, 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 or daddy, daddy, daddy. And the opportunities to speak into their life and to have their attention and to have their affection passes way too quickly. And I've spent too much time distracted because of the other responsibilities of life kept me so worn out and exhausted that I didn't have enough time for my children. I don't want that to be the true, the case anymore. Take every opportunity to speak with them about the things of God. Third point. Third point is this. We'll probably only deal with this next point. Third point is this, prepare your children to be powerfully sent out into the world to resist ungodly culture and take a stand for godly culture. Amen? Prepare your children to be powerfully sent out into the world. Not survive, right? Most of us are hoping that our children won't turn 18, go to a secular college, have some sloppy professor throw a few uh, Richard Dawkins quotes at them, and then they just walk away from the faith and are destroyed, and then just totally lose their faith. And we're just hoping they, don't, they aren't lost. 
I'm not sending my children out in the world to try and survive. I'm sending my children out in the world and I'm believing. and I'm asking God, by the grace of God, to help me. To send my children out in the world as conquerors. To send them out powerfully to change the culture, not to become a victim of it or not survive in it and not put their light in a bushel and go, I hope no one puts this out. But to send them out as a light into the world, shining in the darkness as an example of godliness and the blessing of the Lord. So prepare your children to be sent out powerfully into the world to resist ungodly culture and take a stand for godly culture. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verse 1 through 5, it says this Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Verse 3 Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate. This is called a song of ascents. There's a section of the Psalms called Song of Ascents, like to ascend, to rise up, to go up. And the reason is because these were specific songs that were written for the people to sing as they were going to Jerusalem three times a year for the different feasts that they were to go to. And these are the songs that they would sing together. They would travel as a family and sometimes in groups of families together for safety. And so they're traveling, and as they're traveling, they would sing these songs together. And as they're going to the temple to worship the Lord, these three times a year, these camp meeting services or conferences, if you will, for specific focuses on family, one of the things that is necessary that would happen is that with the sacrifices you were make, you're, you're forced to think about the things of God and your accountability to God in those things, right? I mean, specifically, this Feast of Passover uh, is a time for sacrifice of the Lamb to renew the covenant with God and to deal with your sins and go, Lord, we didn't live up to the covenant again this year. Another year of not perfectly living up to the covenant. But Lord, let the blood be applied. Lord, renew the covenant. Let us remember, God, the grace that saved us and brought us out of Egypt. And Lord, let us walk with you again another year. Renew a spiritual faithfulness and fervor in our heart. And they would come together and remember the sacrifice of the Lamb for, to set them free. And as they're doing that, they must be thinking about their sins. They must be thinking about their family. And don't all of us do that. We go to church, we clap, we sing, we worship, we get in the altar and pray. And then next week we're coming to church feeling like a hypocrite or a failure. We know we had an argument with our spouse or we got frustrated at the kids on the way to church. Or maybe the kids feel like, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't even be a Christian. I can't do it. I'm frustrating my mother and my father. And I just feel like they're just always disappointed in me and frustrated with me. And if I can't make them happy, I'm surely not making God happy and we're all thinking about our weaknesses as a family and the way that we're not doing what we ought to do as a family. And as they're going up, singing the songs of Zion, going up, preparing to worship, this psalm starts off with this, if the Lord doesn't build the house, it'll never get built. Lord, we're not going to build this house perfectly. This is impossible for us to do. God, if you don't establish our family, if you don't establish our home, Lord, if you don't establish the culture of godliness and faith in our house, it will never be built. This is impossible for us to do. But we believe that you will help us to do it. Amen? Praise God. Hallelujah. Can you thank the Lord that God is gracious can you thank the Lord that He's able to work in messy homes? All the families of the Word of God you would point to as an example had very messy homes. Amen? Abraham married to his half-sister. Right? Not a great not a great thing. Him and his nephew Lot ends up having such a big fight, they can't even be together anymore. They, they say, we're still family, we still love the Lord, still have the same faith, but i got to be over here and you got to be over there because we just can't get along. Well, we're God's people. We love the Lord and we love one another. We cannot stand to be around each other. There's just too much conflict, 
right? They go over here, they go over there. Abraham, the man of faith who walked all over the promised land and didn't stumble, Romans says, stumbled into the bed of Hagar and had a son named Ishmael who would grow up to have the tribe of the Ishmaelites that would end up being a thorn in the side of Israel. They were messy. Let's not even talk about Jacob. We don't have the time. Let's not talk about David. Let's not talk about all their mistakes. But God was establishing their house. God was building their home. God was patient with them. God was transforming them. God was merciful to them. And if you let the mess in your home keep you from letting God make a message out of you because you won't go to church, you feel condemned, you feel you're not worthy, you feel you're not good enough, then you are missing out. We are coming together to let the grace of God work in us a new culture of godliness. And as I see it working in you, God will encourage me and strengthen me. As you see it working in me, God will encourage you and strengthen you and we will together see the image of Christ and the family of God in each other's lives. Praise God. And so he says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Involve God in the building of your home. Ask God to help you. Ask God to teach you. Ask the Lord to show you. Ask God to help you. In all of these ways. And then he says in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. That is God giving you a legacy to let what He has done in your life extend beyond you and go beyond you into future generations. Amen? Most of us live way too short-sighted. We're thinking about today. We're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about next month. We're thinking about retirement. How many of you have prayed for your children for the next 500 years? How many of you have thought about decades and centuries and millennia after you? Finish this song for me. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. This man was 4,000 years ago. You've never met him, right? And most of you here look nothing like him. Me either, right? This is a man from the Middle East, probably a dark-skinned man in a completely different world, speaking a completely different language, doing completely different things. That's my father. Because I've got his faith. Because I believe his God. And the same grace that touched his life has been passed down to me. And we're looking at our children right now going, Oh God, what can you do? Lord, they're lost forever. They're 20 and they are going insane and they're living for the world. And, and Lord, I just don't know what you can do. It feels like it's all lost. My children are in their 30s or their 40s and they're not serving God. And Lord, it's, it's hopeless. It's all lost. Can you imagine being Isaac? I mean, your father waited for you for 20 years. And the promise that has been passed on to you is that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you are the promised child. And then your children is Jacob and Esau. And Jacob gets the blessing of the Lord and you think, well, God tried. Because Jacob's not the one. He's not the one. He is not the one to carry on generational blessings. He is not the one. That is a big mosquito. Hallelujah. Don't be distracted. I acknowledge it because I know you saw it. But you think, Lord, it looks all lost. How are you going to touch all the nations of the earth when this guy's the third one in line? He got messed up at bullet point three. And this is just going to send us completely off course. There is no help. There is no hope. Jacob is a mess. And Jacob has been fighting God and wrestling with God. Jacob is just completely a failure of spiritual life. And he's gone out of his father's house. And as far as his father knows, his son has gone out of his house and he's wreaking the same havoc in another city, in another culture. Somewhere out there, he's not around godly influence. And there is no hope. And as far as Isaac is concerned, he may die before he ever sees his son. 
really come to a relationship with God. But little does he know that in the middle of a desert somewhere, God is wrestling with Jacob. That God is able to get a hold of Jacob. That God is able to deal with his rebellion and his pride. That God is able to deal with his manipulation and his cunning and his hard-headedness and his determination to always find a way out and do it his way. And who cares about the consequences? I will do it my way and I don't care about what you say. All I'm worried about is me. And there's God wrestling with him in the desert. We are too short-sighted. Because God said that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of that wayward son who's got a purpose from the Lord passed down from father to son to grandson. And right now you have no idea how he's going to serve the Lord. Maybe you feel like a failure as a parent. But there's a really good thing that I'm not weak like you. You can't wrestle him. I can wrestle him. I can break him. I can put my hand on him and watch him be broken and humbled and made small. And generations after him will be known as the people who worship the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Believe for generations to come a heritage from the Lord. And he says this. He says they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. An arrow is an offensive weapon. It is not like a sword that is intended to be kept on your person. It is something to be sent out. Amen? And the way that you do it is you take that weapon and you put it under tension and you release it and it is sent out for a purpose. Right? And like I said, I wish I could just keep my children in my house all the days of their life and just protect them and keep them safe and not let that big, bad, nasty world touch them. God has not called us to have children and keep them. He has called us to send children out into the world in a powerful and effective way. Amen? Praise God. And this is the point that an arrow can reach places that you would never be able to reach on your own. Amen? It gives you the ability to extend your effectiveness to defend and protect something precious. And he says, you're building a house. You're you're keeping watch over the city. You're making sure that the enemy is not getting in the gates. And God is helping you, watching over the city, alerting you to the dangers that are ahead. And you see them coming across the horizon, but they are out of your reach before they can even get to your house. You can prepare your children to be built up in faith and godliness and wisdom and send them out to go beyond what you're able to do in your own strength. Amen? This is why, and I'll just share with you, this is, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but this is one of the things that I knew was an indicator that my time for pastoring in the situation I was in was up because I had just reached a point where I could, I could not make my family a priority and the be faithful to the ministry. Just some circumstance. The church is wonderful. Great relationship. We're good. Nothing bad happened. But just some things changed where I spent 10 years being very busy and not home enough with my children. And I passed a point where I need more time with my family and that just wasn't possible. And I will tell you this. If I save the whole world and I pastor the greatest church that's ever been, But I lose my kids. I have failed. And it is my priority to say, I will raise my children to serve the Lord. And that I believe that if I raise my children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, that I can send them out and they can be so much more effective in faithfulness to God than I could ever be in any kind of devotion that I give to the ministry of the church apart from them. If I pastor 100,000 people, that's awesome. If I can send my children out into the world, I believe they'll have more godly effect on that world than anything I could do in ministry.
This must become our heart. We, we must believe for the effectiveness and the powerful nature of being a parent and raising children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We don't raise, raise children to keep them to ourselves. We are preparing them to go out into the world to destroy the works of the devil, to defend the work of God, and to build something powerful. God must teach us how. He must show us how. He must show us how to make them into strong arrows that don't break. He must show us how to shape them to be strong arrows that can pierce hearts. He must teach us how to make them fly straight and be sent out into the world. God's got to help us. And my faith tonight is that God will help me and that God will help you. And that if we raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and if we have a culture and church that sees older, experienced, godly people take younger, inexperienced Christians under their wing and nurture them and serve them and love them and encourage them, then we will see the house of the Lord built. And we will see a godly culture shaped in a way that will affect generations to come. Amen? How many of you are old enough to remember the sexual revolution of the 60s and to have a comparison in your mind between what culture was before that and what it has become after that? How many of you saw that? You know about that. Can you raise your hand high? You know the difference. All right? Imagine the opposite. The consequences of that handed down generation to generation to generation. Imagine a spiritual revolution. Imagine a family revolution. Imagine a moral revolution. Imagine a grace revolution that changes the hearts of parents and fathers. The sign that the Messiah has come, according to Malachi, is that the Lord will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. He'll give, husband, he'll give fathers natural love and affection to care for them and not be selfish and malicious and destructive and creating a culture that harms children and sets them up for failure. And He'll give children the humility and the respect and the honor to love and admire their parents parents and to listen to their wisdom and their ways. What if we saw that in our day? What could the world look like in 60 years if we had that? Lord, let it start with me. Let it start with you. As it did with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with David, with the Apostle Paul. These men, these women who raised children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. God Almighty, help us. God Almighty, help us. Except the Lord build the house. Except God comes and puts His hand to the home. Except the foundation of Jesus Christ and the grace of God be laid in the home. Except the structure of the Word of God be built up around us. Except the covering of grace and the ministry of the Holy Ghost be the roof above us. They labor in vain who build it. God, You must come. You must come and teach us Your ways. You must come and speak to our hearts. Lord, You must come not just in church services, but in our homes. Lord God Almighty, let the Holy Ghost that reigns in a worship service reign around the dinner table. Let the Word of God that reigns in the pulpit, let it reign supreme in authority over our lives when we're with our children, with our fathers, with our mothers, with our spouses, with our friends. God Almighty, come and inundate us with the Word of God. Come and minister to us by the Holy Ghost. Come and convict us. Lord, I ask you that every father in here that provokes his children to wrath would be smitten in his heart. Oh, God Almighty, help us. Help us, Lord, to not just know the ways of God and the Word of God, 
that we can be conformed to the image of God. That as we teach our children about the Heavenly Father, that they would see Him in us. Lord, as we speak about the gentleness and the ministry and care of the Holy Ghost, that they would see it in their mothers. God Almighty, let the church have a new culture of godliness in the home. Help us, Lord. Do it in us in a way that we never could on our own. Have your way in us tonight. Minister to our faith. Give us faith for our children. Give us faith for generations. Give us hope. And God Almighty, help us to have confidence that, Lord, we may not be perfect parents, but the perfect Heavenly Father is invited into our homes and our families and around the dinner table. And He will be at work in us to make us more like Him and to work His grace in our weaknesses. Come and have your way in us tonight, Lord. Saints of God, I encourage you. I encourage you, if you have time, if you can, seek God. Seek Him tonight, not just for you and your children, not just for you and your parents or your spouse, but for generations to come, for a legacy of righteousness, for a legacy of holiness unto the Lord, for a legacy of faith, for legacies of truth. Seek the Lord tonight. Let Him help you. Have your way tonight, Lord.